Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we're going to pick up in Leviticus 17. Uh, cozy in, get yourself a hot cocoa, uh, get your notes, um, open up your Bible um, or click on your Bible, uh, as, and we will dig in. Um, I had way too much ha- time on my hands this week, so um, I'm going to try to uh, be succinct, but there's some really cool stuff in here. Um, I love Leviticus. It gets into all these topics that we never talk about, like bestiality. Um, so we're going to get into that tonight, and in what other place than a Bible study can you talk about that kind of stuff? So that's what I kind of love about studying this, and I'm actually looking forward to it, and I shouldn't be, but there's some good things. We'll start out with blood uh, tonight, and we'll be talking about blood, so um, we'll dig in on this. And the Lord said, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt and bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. And he has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. So Leviticus 17 is a transition off of 16 where we talked about atonement, right? So on either side of atonement, we have a discussion of these, uh, this idea of blood uh, in different ways. Um, but atonement is what chapter 16 was about, right in the middle of Leviticus, which is right in the middle of the Torah, which is right in the middle of the law of God that he's presenting to the world and through Israel. Um, and in 16, we saw the connection between blood and life, that those two things are going to be um, representative of each other, but they actually are each other too. And this biblical idea that the blood carries the life of the person, not the stomach, not the heart, not the head, the life is in the blood. So that blood then has to be somewhat sacred and God is shaping and molding his people to be more and more sacred through history. And one of the ways he's going to do that is he's going to tell people to respect life uh, and to respect this blood that's going to happen. So there's that piece. Um, Blood gets offered prior to Levitical priesthood. We saw it in Genesis. Uh, we saw the, the river being turned to blood as, a, as one of the plagues in Egypt. Blood gets spilt, and it's representative of the life of that person who spilt the blood, uh, and, and that life comes. So blood is going to be, according to the last chapter, atonement. It's going to be the thing that covers the sin. Uh, and covering is part of what happens when we sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and the first thing they did is they went looking for fig leaves, right, to cover themselves. However, fig leaves weren't quite the thing that they needed to cover themselves. What they needed was what God's presenting to Israel right now, this blood atonement, blood covering that's there. So in chapter 17, atonement's going to be covered, and we need to do some things differently because of the importance of that blood. So 
there's that, and the law is going to establish what's right and wrong regarding this. And the first thing is, we see whatever man in verse 3. And um, uh, you're not supposed to then kill things outside of the camp. So oxes, lambs, and goats are not necessarily for eating. These aren't cattle uh, herds. These are, oxes are for work, lambs are for their fur, uh, and goats are generally for their milk. So the meat that got ate, eaten in the camp of Israel was generally for these big feasts that they had, a peace offering. So when people are eating meat outside of those contexts, they're kind of taking something away from the tabernacle. And God's saying, don't do that. Uh, be a little more respectful. So in chapter 17, there's going to be four, what I'll say are whatever men, right? And, and verse 3 starts with that. Whatever man of the house of Israel, there's going to be four of those. And they're each going to kind of address this issue of... of respect for for how God wants to do this in different slightly different ways the first whatever man that we're going to see here um, is basically killing animals anywhere they darn well please and doing whatever they want right so they're doing it outside the camp and they're not supposed to verse four and they don't bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord the guilt of the blood shall shall be imputed to that man so if you're not killing for the purpose of sacrifice, you shouldn't be killing, right? And this is trying, God's trying to separate his from people from all these other folks. Remember, they come out of Egypt where there's lots of gods. So basically God's saying, I'm going to be your only God and you're not going to have other people, right? And it's a serious thing if they start killing these animals for sacrifice outside the temple. Verse five, to that end, the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field. They may bring them to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as a peace offering before the Lord. So as Israel gets bigger and bigger, they can kill animals outside the camp, but the purpose of that should be to bring it into the priest as quick as possible, bring it as a peace offering, and a peace offering, as you should all know by now, is the feast stuff. So you're bringing it in to share with the rest of the nation of Israel which adds this element of, of sharing to it too and, and not just killing for yourself. So everything that gets killed is seen as a life sacrificed and the Jewish people are supposed to live this way. We don't kill lightly. Even people that are farmers, it's not fun to kill the animals, right? Especially as you've raised them and kept them up. So we don't kill lightheartedly and we don't do it anywhere. And there's even a spiritual element to this, right? So as most religions of this time would kill some sort of animal for sacrifice, uh, God's saying that this isn't something we do lightly and it's not something you do outside of the temple sacrifice here. So it's intuitive for people to do this. It's not just the Israelites that are killing animals for sacrifice. So God pulls the Hebrews away from this kind of killing animals all willy-nilly and puts a location on it. So they're supposed to offer an offering. That's a limitation. That, that's the only context where you kill those animals. They're supposed to focus it on the worship of the Lord, so that's a target of the sacrifice. And then there's a location, which is the door of the tabernacle in verse 4. So God's bringing order to this process of sacrifice. Verse 6, And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat as a sweet aroma for the Lord as you do in a peace offering. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. That's a strong sentence. And there shall be a statute forever uh, for them throughout their generations. So we get the word demons. And this is where you can, you can get into this a lot. 
Um, the Bible acknowledges that there are other spiritual beings besides God, besides the Holy Spirit. And those other spiritual beings are, are often called demons. Here the Hebrew word is sarhim. And sarhim is a word that if you really dig into it, has a lot to do with Satan, this other kind of spiritual being that God has cast out. And that other places in the Bible kind of tell that story. Uh, sarhim throughout history uh, is, a, is a goat that has a man body and a goat head. Um, so specifically, Serhim is that one, and, and we see evidence of Serhim being worshipped by the Hittites, by the Canaanites. The whole point of Serhim worship was uh, demonic possession, to worship or do drugs or have festivals until at some point uh, the priest or someone else is possessed by a demon. And God's saying that's not good. You shouldn't offer sacrifices to demons. What I think is interesting spiritually is that you have these beings wanting sacrifices. They want the blood and they want the killing because uh, they too see that there's some sort of power in this. It doesn't get into it a lot more than there, other than to, to say that this is kind of a, the core idea here is that God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us giving our life, our energy, and our attention to other things besides him, right? So these kinds of sacrifices imply that Israelites would be out doing whatever they please, Right? So they're reckless with how they do this. Here's another thing. This isn't just ancient world stuff. This is still around by the time Paul is there. And Paul writes about the same kind of things using the same kind of language. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. So he's talking about Romans sacrificing to Roman gods, of which you still saw goat men like figures even through roman and greek um religious worship and not to god i would not that you should have fellowship with devils you can't drink the cup of the lord and the cup of devils you can't be partakers of the lord's table and the table of devils paul wouldn't say that and moses wouldn't write that if it wasn't a belief that you could do that that you could worship yahweh and worship other spiritual beings but you can't uh, both of them firmly say you shouldn't do that. I think to some degree we could say this is still around today. Um, if you're looking at worshiping idols or spiritual forces, you can look at some of the things like what we looked at in, in, in Ephesians yesterday, that there are courses of the world that are ruled by the prince of the air, which is the same kind of satanic devil being, um, that this world is driven by spiritual forces. And all the things that we are offered to put our attention, money, and time into um, have an energy to them or have some sort of spiritual force to them. At least I think that's what's going on here. Uh, don't do that. It's not a new thing that that happened. It's an old thing. God asks you to lose your life so that you can save it. The pursuit of these other things are to pursue your own version of life the way you want to pursue it. Offer after whom is how it's here. God, they shall no more offer after, the, after demons and sacrifice after whom they've played the harbit, harlot. So what humans do is we offer ourselves, our time, our money, and our resources to things, and we go after things. We seek after things, and we follow after things. It's how we're wired, right? So if we're not following after God, we have to follow after something. We're going to pursue something, career, money, time, entertainment, travel, and we're going to do that. If it's not God that we pursue when we wake up in the morning, then we're already in kind of dangerous territory, right? In this sense, I had kind of a cool thought. Religion 
anthropologists believe have evolved over time. And as religion evolves, it became more monotheistic over time. But what we see here in the Bible is the exact opposite and evidence of it, knowing how old the Bible is. Religion hasn't evolved into monotheism. It devolves into the worship of all sorts of things, and people just pick whatever they want to spend their time on. Right? That's essentially a, a polytheistic world, is you can kind of pick which god you want to go and pursue and go after. You like the god of war, you can go down to the shooting range. You like the god of love, you can go to the temple of Aphrodite. And you can do these different things. And we can kind of still do that today. Everybody pursuing their own thing is kind of a form of that polytheism, right? We just don't call them gods. Early versions of every major society is the earlier back we go, we see monotheism. So in fact, over time, we don't evolve into a monotheistic religional system. And then ultimately, I think most of those anthropologists say then the next step is atheism. We actually devolve into polytheism. And we see the rise in things like pagan worship and, and other religions in our country versus this kind of uh, version of everyone going atheist. Humans don't really operate that way, right? So this is a major law that separates the Hebrew world from the standard world. I'll move on. I know I was getting too into this. Of course, the language of the harlot, we should all know what a harlot is. Uh, this is an image that's going to stick around, and we'll get into it when we get to the prophets, especially Isaiah. Um, the image of Israel going off to worship other gods, from God's perspective, it's like you're cheating on him. Um, and it's the, it's the same thing as a marriage. It, th there's love that happens in a marriage that's beautiful and wonderful, and when it happens outside the marriage, it can be evil and destructive, right? Um, entertaining at first but it eventually becomes something that destroys. And religion's the same way. Um, if you're worshiping God, it can be in the home, it can be beautiful. When you start giving your worship away to everything else in the world, it becomes destructive. It's a statute forever, um, so we should take care on this. We should pay attention to this because it's something that forever means right now. Uh, it applies to us today. In verse 8, we get to the second whatever man. Uh, you shall also say to them, whatever man for, of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, Jews or Gentiles, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle or meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So we're, the first whatever man is about worshiping other gods or being careless with that. The second whatever man, the, notice in verse 8, they're actually offering a burnt offering, which is right from Leviticus 1. So they're doing a burnt offering, or they're doing something that's worshiped to Yahweh, but they're not doing it the way that they've been told to do it. Now, when the priests started doing their own thing, God killed them. When the general public starts doing their own thing, that's not okay with God. So there's a sacrificial system that's in place. It has to do with the priesthood. And Moses is basically saying any person who tries to go and do this stuff on their own, they're going to get cut off from the people. In other words, the worship of Yahweh is a congregational form of worship. We don't just do it on our own. So later in Deuteronomy, there's a provision that they can do some things outside the camp. As the camp gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and they become a nation, then suddenly you can have sacrifices in local communities, but it's still led by the priesthood. So where whatever man number one is kind of an adulterer and worshiping other gods, whatever number man number two is not worshiping other gods, worshiping Yahweh, but doing it in their own way, right? They're compromised. They're going to do something that looks like Judaism, but they're going to kind of make it their own thing and do it their own way. God doesn't want that either. 
verse 10. And, and this is the third whatever man. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, <laughs> that's what we're getting into tonight. I will set my face against the person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it upon you, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. That's the purpose of sacrificial blood, is this temporary atonement for the souls of the people of, of Israel. There's no other purpose for it, especially not drinking it. So I know that some of you may struggle with drinking blood, um, but this should end that. You should submit to the idea that we don't drink blood. <laughs> for it is the blood that makes the atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, nobody amongst you should eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So even people that aren't Jewish, if you're going to hang out with the Hebrews, you don't drink blood around them. Now, it sounds silly where whatever man one is off worshiping other things and whatever man two is worshiping Yahweh, but doing it in their own way and making up their own version of how Yahweh wants. They're not listening to God. Whatever man three is in direct defiance against God, actually an enemy of God, working actively against him. And you'd think drinking blood is a weird, obscure thing. It's not. Historically, drinking blood is in almost all the different pagan religions. So God's, again, separating the Jewish people from the, the, the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Um, but it keeps showing up. First of all, it's in Indiana Jones number two. They have the thing where they pull the heart out of the chest and it's nastiness. Nastiness is where religious worship gets when it's not orderly and when it's not in the service of God. It's just these ritualistic kinds of things have to get bigger and more elaborate um, or they don't feel as religious to people. And frankly, drinking blood, it, the symbolism of it, the spiritual power of it does have an impact. It would, you know, it would be something that would be an impactful service. In the 15th century, for instance, and we're not talking ancient here, we're talking 15th century, Pope Innocent VIII had physicians that actually bled three young men to death so that the Pope could drink their blood in the belief that that blood might give the Pope youth and vitality again, right? It's sick. And the Pope clearly didn't read this chapter of Leviticus. You shouldn't do that, right? So it does. drinking blood throughout history stands out in every culture as something that's representative of evil, horrible, or chaotic forces in the world, except for, for Pope VIII, uh, for, for Pope Innocent VIII. Somehow or another, he missed that too. Um, it's frequent amongst those who defy God. And when you have religions that acknowledge Yahweh, Jehovah, but they're against Jehovah, Allah, Satanism, witchcraft, some of those things, blood drinking gets to be part of their inner circle. It's part of the evolution of that kind of thing, right? In the U.S., this kind of paganism or vampirism, drinking blood, especially human blood, has actually grown significantly since the 1960s. In 2015, there was a study by John Edgar Browning. He went into, in, into the New Orleans community and interviewed people who would call themselves blood drinkers or vampires. This stuff is sick. But listen to his argument, right? Because God calls this stuff wrong, right? You're going to put your face against God when you do these things. But listen to Browning's take on this. He wants us to change our mind. The encounters taught him that we should treat them with respect, we should give them the same respect that we afford to all other minority groups. Quote, when I first went into the study, I'd assumed that I'd meet kooky people, 
But within a year, I realized that vampires didn't have the problem. It's us non-vampires that have had the perceptual problem. This is sick, right? But it's not stopping. It's growing all over the world. The post-Christian Europe has a growth in this too. Because if you're not going to watch worship God, you got to worship something. And that elaborateness seems to give it some kind of coolness or, 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 or edginess. But it's not edgy. It's old. It's just that it was, it was reduced significantly with the rise of Judaism and Christianity. And frankly, uh, um, Islam doesn't have blood drinking in it as part of its rituals. So interestingly enough, there's been a rise in medical research that though there's an admitted danger to drinking blood, like you can get bloodborne pathogens from it, you can overdose of iron by drinking blood. So there's horribly bad things that happen medically, but that's not the, the big thing. They simply recommend, and this is the, the University College of London has recommendations for healthy blood drinking. Um, and, and, and if you're interested, you don't drink any more than a teaspoon or two to avoid complications, uh, end quote. Or just don't drink blood. Like, it's nasty. But when you're not worshiping God, or worse, when you're in defiance against God, it's something that you can do to name yourself as defiance against Jehovah, that you don't agree with his limitations. So, interestingly, we're going to see more and more of a rise of that. I know when I was a kid, there was a rise of other things that we just thought, wow, how is this getting normalized? And now we're seeing medical community people and psychological community people trying to normalize vampirism is just kind of a segment of the population, just people that do that, right? As long as they do it in a safe way. Or you just don't because the reason isn't medical, the reason is spiritual, right? You're going to mess yourself up. You're going to scar yourself for life. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is a principle that's a biblical principle that other religions and worship systems kind of leverage. So, don't drink blood. I'm going to keep going. The blood that makes the atonement for the soul piece here, and I, uh, to go more back with biblical themes, we're supposed to treat it as holy, but it's also supposed to be a physical life. So the blood of the physical body makes atonement for the soul of the spiritual body. When we put these together, the only blood that's ever flowed through a being on earth that's eternal is the blood of Jesus Christ because he was resurrected from the dead. So the only blood that atones eternally is the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says, quote, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6, if you want the reference. To Jewish people, based on Leviticus 17, when Jesus said that, he was in direct heresy against Jewish principle, unless he's God and he's revealing a new covenant, right? So if you believe Jesus was right, then that all makes sense. He's talking about communion. And that symbolic blood is going to be grape juice and the flesh is going to be bread. And he's adding that symbolism to those two items. But you take that out of context and he's basically saying you need to drink his blood to have life which is a concept that gets its root right here in Leviticus 17. God says, I will set my face against you, right? You become an, a willful enemy of God when you do this. Whatever man three, where the first one's adulterous and the second one is compromised, the third one is defiant. Suddenly, with these three whatever men's, you kind of sum up all of humanity. You've got people that are not caring and they're off doing whatever they want to do. 
you got people that are pretending that they're believers, but they're doing it their own way and they're compromised. And you've got people in defiance against God that say, I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do. And they set themselves in the face of God and God sets his face against them. You've got three different kinds of people. The fourth different kind of person actually does things the right way. Verse 13, whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers of, who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So God basically addresses the idea that animals can be killed outside the tabernacle, but you do it for hunting and you bleed them in the field, and then you cover that blood with dust, treating it with respect and honor, even as a hunter in the middle of the woods all by yourself. There's an honor and a respect that's given when something is killed, even in the act of hunting, right? And in this sense, whatever man for is not doing anything wrong. He's being hygienic. He's treating the blood with respect. There isn't a worship service going on here. He's not doing it as a holy sacrifice. He's not drinking it and setting himself up against God. He's simply just burying the blood into the dust. From dust we came, from dust we return, and he treats it with honor. Whatever man for then does it the right way, he treats it with reverence. He's respectful, and he honors what God has called life. So, verse 15, And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native or, in, or, or of your own country or a stranger, um, so they're eating roadkill or they find a dead animal on the side of the road and they eat it. The Bible wouldn't say it if people didn't do it. Um, so that for me is just the, you just think what kind of world did they live in? Who were these Egyptians and Canaanites that you need a rule like this? And I'm really glad I grew up in an era strongly influenced by Judeo-Christian beliefs. One of which is don't eat roadkill. <laughs> and so we don't. So he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. So wait, you can eat roadkill and all you got to do is take a bath? Um, that's gross and it's nasty. Um, but, you know, take a bath. You should be clean. I think God's acknowledging that these people maybe are hungry and they're starving to death. Um, but if he does not wash or bathe uh, his body, then he shall bear his guilt. So you're just a really disgusting human being and you're guilty of being disgusting. So God doesn't leave anything out. The odd thing is, when I hear people saying things like, well, the, the Bible's ambiguous about things. No, it's not. Um, the Bible addresses even the eating of roadkill. It doesn't leave anything out. There's not much that we humans can think of. I would have never thought to do that. Um, but there it is in the Bible, verse 15 and 16. If you ever meet someone that wants to eat roadkill, you can show them how to do it and take a bath and be clean when they're done. Um, there are health reasons for everything we've just read about. And a lot of the commentators you read will go into all the health reasons of why it's not good to drink blood. It's not good to do these other kinds of things. Uh, this is the cleanest way to kill animals and eat it. But at the end of the day, I think this chapter is about spiritual issues. It's not always about the health stuff in, in these things, though there are health reasons not to eat roadkill, right? Um, the central concept here is that blood is life literally and spiritually, and it should be respected, right? Blood is life to God. Blood is life in the temple. Blood is life is not to be of your own. You shouldn't be shedding it because you want to on your own, and you should be respectful of it. It's God's image of life, right? 
and it should be kept and reserved for God as your life should be kept and reserved for God, right? Only proper sacrifices will do. Animal blood's insufficient at the end of the day. This is the image that Jesus is going to use for how we understand that he covered our sins. So God wants to reserve that and keep it tight. So that's what I got on 17. My wife's like, how did you have an hour's worth of stuff on these two chapters? And I'm like, roadkill. We, have, we can spend five minutes on roadkill uh, just by that stuff alone. Um, and Leviticus 18, if you thought roadkill was bad, we're going to hit, well, I'll just, I'll just, let me read the intro. Um, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I'm the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I'm the Lord. What a beautiful paragraph. It is the justification for everything we're talking about. It's a lead-in summary statement that's going to set us up for pretty much a list of things where if you find someone who's not a believer they're likely doing one of these things. And, and I'll explain it a little bit, or they're thinking about it. As Jesus said, it's not so much the people that do it, but it's also people that think about doing it, right? So we're going to get into a list of kind of human nastiness um, and what people do. Um, and if you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. If people have a problem serving God, like they want to be believers, but they, they, they just can't believe in a God that believes this or that, or they can't believe in a God that would judge somebody like this or that. This is probably the chapter where they're struggling with being becoming a Christian or becoming a believer, right? So us as believers, we have to be able to deal with these issues and talk about them with people, right? We have to. Um, or we're not going to be able to lovingly open this door for people. On the other hand, when people put up a roadblock because of these issues, they probably aren't going to become believers anyways because they're defying God's judgments, as it says here. So I've already pointed out the contrast in lifestyle that God is drawing between the Egyptians and the Canaanites. These are the verses I get that from. Clearly, God's saying, you live in a nasty world, and I don't want you to be those people. I want you to be holy. That hasn't changed. Look around. We live in a world where people do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. And God's still saying to his people, I want you to be different. I want you to be holy and set yourself apart. So... He's defining what's lawful and what's not permitted. These are God's judgments and his ordinances. If you don't do them, then you live. And, uh, and again, this is where people get into a lot of the medical benefits. Almost all of these things have medical implications that I didn't research, and I'm not going to get into much. But there is a legitimate way to look at this, saying God is simply preparing his people to be healthy. Uh, and a lot of these things have those kinds of things. But that's not the reason that God gives in these verses. You're going to walk in them because I'm the Lord your God. That's the reason he gives in verse 4. He doesn't say do these things because they're medically healthy or do these things because they're spiritually or emotionally or psychologically healthy. He says do these things because I'm the Lord your God. That's the reason he wants us to have in our heart. I'll obey him because he says so. Some of these things are easier to obey on than others. Um, he says to walk in them. And we see this phrase being walked on, to walk in the way of God. I think that's a beautiful image. And vibrant Christians can point to their walk 
and it is their witness, right? It is the thing that gets us in trouble with extended family members and friends that we used to have when we were younger because they see us pursuing holiness and that's the problem they have with us. That's interesting. But if you look at Paul, Peter, James, John, all of them say, look at how I live and do that. And when people say, well, how do I become a Christian? It's like, just do what I'm doing. Just walk in these precepts. So they point to their lives and they show them. Compromised Christians can't do that. And your witness is gone. Because if you're a compromised Christian, you have to point people and say, well, look at how Jesus did things. But that's a pretty weak argument. Because if Jesus did things, but it doesn't have the power to change how I walk, then there's really not a lot of power there. There's not a lot of life-changing capacity. If you've been a believer for that long and you're still compromised, come on. Uh, and anyways, it's one of the most powerful passages in the Old Testament, Old Testament that explains God's will for our life. It's, in this passage, it says what God wants us to do and what he wants us to not do. So it's very important to understand the Egypt-Canaan perspective. This is where you were, Egypt. This is where you're going, Canaan. I don't want you to stray from the path either in your past or in your future. I want you to go there. I want to make two points before we get into the weirdness of this chapter. One, and I think these are great arguments, and I think we don't win people to the, the kingdom through arguments. Nobody has ever become a believer because they've lost an, lost an argument with us. People become believers because the Holy Spirit moves in their heart and they just want the love of Jesus Christ. And they want that because they see it in our life. So really these are things we should be, these are arguments for ourselves, not arguments to go bring out on the street with our picket signs at a six foot, you know, social distance. Egypt and Canaan. Everything I'm going to read about in chapter 18 is not unique, right? The Bible isn't naive. And it's not ignorant of human desires, human proclivities, and human perversion. It's not. And to think the Bible is some sort of ancient thing and that we're modern and these new things we're bringing into our society are making, are they're just the next step in our history and whatnot. No, they're not. They're very old things that were prevalent through Egyptian and Canaanite and Greek and Roman societies, and they're still prevalent today. It's people that want to do whatever they want to do. And they don't want to submit to God. Okay, so they're not unique. They're all over. They're rampant in these societies. And they're not new. They're actually, just pay attention as we go through this list, we're going to hit stuff that we don't even think of. But it's not new stuff. It's not hip, modern. It's just lawlessness. There's no boundaries to it, right? And that's the point. That's the point of the last chapter, too, is people just that don't have boundaries. And they set themselves against God, essentially... In this chapter, we're going to talk about sex. Essentially, everything in this chapter is just sexual chaos. It's people having sex with whoever, whenever, however they want to. And God's saying that's not, that's not good for us. It's not healthy. It's not trusting. It doesn't last. It's not holy. And it's not what God ordained, right? Most of the things we're going to read about in this chapter aren't healthy in any way that in these relationships, somebody usually gets hurt and somebody usually feels more powerful. And that's the sad part about it. Instead of a mutual relationship, we have these mismatches of power that go throughout this chapter. And then last but not least, and I, I have a hard time with this because I know and I have friends and, 
and have colleagues in academia that really argue this point, that the Bible needs to be understood through a culturally relative lens, that in that society, they didn't see this, this, and this. And I think in this chapter, we get to really see, and that's maybe why we need to absorb this, they absolutely saw all of these things. In fact, what God was doing with the Israelites was to make them more holy than the society they lived in. And the Egyptians and the Canaanites were way worse than what we see in America when it comes to sexual practices. So the relativism of this passage, if you want to really understand the relativism is, is that these Israelites grew up in a society where they saw this stuff everywhere. It was completely normalized. And what we're reading in this chapter is for God to say this will no longer be normal for us. It's a culture shift in the other direction that they're taking here. And as believers, we should say the same thing. Even if our culture says something's legal or okay or not such a bad thing anymore, maybe as people that want to be holy and set apart, we just say, you know what, we're just going to be holy. And we're going to commit ourselves to holiness. And that's an okay thing for us. Why is that such a problem with other people? Why is it something that's naive? Or when you see a, a young man or a young woman that says, I want to wait for my spouse someday and I'm not going to have sex till I'm married, why is that being ostracized so bad? Okay, then don't do it. But sex is elevated to this spiritual state of happiness for people that if you don't have sex, you're somehow less happy. It's not true, right? Sex is wonderful if it's done in the right place. If it's done in the wrong place, it's like the last chapter. It's harlotry. So... We're going to see the world's version of sex. Uh, it won't be very productive. It won't be very um, helpful. Uh, and it won't be God's version of sex, where when it's in a marriage, it's fruitful, safe, enjoyable, fun. Uh, when it's outside of marriage, it's not. So I'm really glad I get to do this chapter to an empty room, largely, except for my family looking at me with big smiles on their faces. Let's start with incest. Verse 6, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. The phrase uncover his nakedness is used seven time, 17 times in, chapter, in this chapter, and it's a broad encompassing phrase that means all sexual activity. All the way back to don't even look at people naked, which is the simple version, but this has to do with all levels of sexuality, should not be engaged in to somebody who's near of kin. If you're in the same camp together, you're the same tribe, Let's not go there. And the reason given at the end of verse 6 is, I am the Lord. Same reason we saw in the previous verses. In case people may try to just, you know, play with this, God's going to give, I think, nearly every possible combination. And I'm just going to read through them. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you should not uncover. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Again, God wouldn't say this if it wasn't prevalent in those cultures, right? So we can chuckle at this a little bit, but this was running rampant, right? So God's saying, no, don't do these things. And his, his logic is because I'm the Lord. Verse eight, the nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It's your father's nakedness. So in Genesis 49.4, Reuben lost his inheritance over this. The, when Absalom did this with David's wives, it broke relationship between the two of them forever. Somebody gets hurt when you do this stuff. And again, your father's wife might not be biologically related to you because it's not your mother, so then that might be okay. No, it's not okay. You should be like Joseph and just run from that stuff, right? 
He lives in the household of Potiphar, and he doesn't go and see the nakedness, even though she's happy to reveal herself to him. That's another story. Verse 9. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, or whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you should not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. Ooh, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter begotten by your father, she's your sister, you should not uncover her nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She's near of king to your father. So Aunt Ethel is off limits. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You should not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not un approach his wife. She's your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. And you should not uncover her nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They're near of kin to her. It's wicked. Nor shall you, you know, to do that last one, you almost have to plan it, right? And, and I think that's why it gets tagged on. This is wicked. You have to plot and plan to do something like this. Verse 18, nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister, to uncover her nakedness while the other is still alive. Relationships in the, the first set of verses here has to do with household, right? These are all people in the household. And it's not always about biology, but there's a spiritual piece here. A, I am the Lord is at the beginning, and at the end it says it's wickedness, right? So in this is a spiritual logic that's being given here. All of these are directed at men, and what men should be doing and not doing. I think it's a logical thing to say women shouldn't be uncovering nakedness either or going about doing that. The argument in verse 18 about a woman and a rival sister is one of kind of the pieces that in Judeo-Christian tradition gets interpreted as no polygamy, right? You shouldn't have sister wives because they then compete with each other and there gets to be a sense where you could try to culturally normalize that but at the end of the day, it's generally, according to God, a disaster, and it's hurtful and damaging. And you may say to me, well, Sean, there's polygamy in the Bible, and there's polygamy all over the Bible. True. But every instance of polygamy in the Bible is a disaster. It's an example of a complete messed up family. It never works in the Bible, and it doesn't get ordained or blessed in the Bible, and it's not definitely not advocated in the Bible by God in any place. It's always an example. There's also murder in the Bible and adultery in the Bible. There's lots of things in the Bible that the Bible doesn't endorse. It gives examples of why this is so harmful and hurtful. It's evil to give nakedness, and I like that phrase, give nakedness and take nakedness. It's evil to do that with anyone other than your spouse. It's evil to take nakedness from anyone other than your spouse, right? To give nakedness is adultery. To take nakedness is rape, right? And neither one's good. And all of these relationships are off limits. You can say how restricting. The Bible has all these rules. How can you live by all these rules? It's politically incorrect to limit humanity in so many ways, in so many specific ways. I really didn't think most humans were capable of a lot of these sins, but they are. And it's why they're in the Bible. It's why people do this. Moral codes hold us back 
culturally and spiritually from things that hurt people. And when you're in a home or a household, you shouldn't have to worry about sexual advances. That's hurtful and harmful. It's evil and wicked. The limits that God puts here are limits that protect women and young men and women and, and old men and women in their own homes. They can live and be happy and play board games and be joyful and not worry about these weird advances from Uncle Fester, right? There's a nastiness to all this, right? And home should be a safe place where our hearts can learn to point to God. So God gives us love, and that, that's one of the arguments. Why would God restrain us from loving whoever we want? There's different kinds of love, right? And the family love, filial love, mentorship between elders and, 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 and juniors should be free from that sort of thing, right? Some relationships, the healthiest ones, aren't always about sex. In fact, most of our relationships should be loving, but sex and love are not the same thing, and God separates those things. There's an agape love that's in the church where we call people brothers and sisters. And if they're my brother and they're my sister, there shouldn't be a sexual relationship between us. That's not what that's about. And the world just doesn't get that idea, right? So they normalize sexual relations between anyone they want to. Here's a last thought. Incest is often what cowards do. I think it's lazy to think I'm going to make advances towards people I know and from people who are in my family because I can't get away from them or they can't get away from me, right? So that idea of incest is kind of a horrible thing. And if you think of the courage it requires to ask someone out on a date for the first time, there's a courage to that. And God wants us to have to leave the household to go find our spouses because it's a character development kind of thing, right? To engage and communicate with people that aren't from your own household requires you to think more about them than about yourself. You have to listen. The people in your house, own household, you all speak the same language already, right? You tell the same jokes over and over and over again, if you're in my family. <laughs> sadly, and this is really sadly, I think this chapter is progressive. God starts with the most common sins and works to a devolved culture. And you'd say, well, incest isn't that common, and actually it is. It's incredibly common, especially if you do it broadly, right, to uncover one's nakedness. The Atlantic in 2013 said three to f one in every three to four girls and one in every five to seven boys have been sexually approached or abused before they turn 18 years old. There's an overwhelming incidence that happens within family units and structures. Because if we don't worship God, then there's no limits on our behavior. There's no moral limit, especially in the privacy of our own homes. And here's the kicker, this kind of indiscretion is one of the least reported indiscretions. So these numbers that we're coming up with show in America where this kind of stuff is happening all over the place. In fact, if the numbers are right, there's people that are listening to me right now where you've had this stuff happen before you were 18. It's not helpful. It's, it's hurtful. It's evil and wicked. And God says it's wicked. He didn't intend that for you to, for that to happen in your home. And someone's accountable for that when that happened to you. Abused kids, especially when the, the abuse goes all the way to sexual relationships, that's just the start. You have a culture of people that are getting abused in the home and that home isn't a safe place anymore. There's a higher likelihood of crime, depression, drug abuse, all of it, you name it. 
So it's the beginning of a culture that's falling apart, and I think God starts there, but it gets worse. Verse 19, there's a direct prohibition. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she's in her customary impurity. So now we're leaving the household. It's, you shouldn't approach any woman as long as she's in her customer, customary impurity. He's restating what we saw back in Leviticus 15, 19, only here it's a direct prohibition, and ultimately it gives women the ability to say no to any guy. So when a guy approaches a woman and she says, ah, it's my time, she's off the hook according to this law. If this law gets ignored, we have a rise in rape in our culture. Moreover, verse 20, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself or her. So you shouldn't be committing adultery, Exodus 20, 14. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And you shouldn't uncover her either, Exodus 20, 17. Your neighbor is anyone. So you shouldn't lie with anyone carnally because you defile them and yourself. Outside of marriage, you shouldn't be sleeping around. So you move from this kind of inside the household thing to just having sex with whoever outside the household, right? In this society, if you want to check the cultural thing on this, w girls were committed to men very, very young. So almost everyone who was a woman had been committed to somebody whether or not the marriage ceremony has happened, right? So there's somebody else's wife is always the person you're talking with. Right? So in this, this idea, your neighbor's wife is basically encompassing all women of age within Jewish society. Women were um, promised and they were supposed to be um, reserved for their husbands. So you wait on that. No sex outside of marriage. There's no room here in this particular sentence, you shall not, that provides room for any justifications. So you have whatever man number two from the last chapter. There's no real way to do this your own way and still be within God's rules because these rules are fairly restrictive if you see it from that perspective or they're wonderfully amazing and beautiful and orderly and safe uh, if you look at it from another. So don't defile yourself. So here we get an effect listed. Uncontrolled people are defiled not just physically but socially. They're seen as unfaithful people, unreliable people. How can I trust you to be um, to be honest to our marriage if you've not been respectful to it before we got married. To do this after marriage or even after you have kids, it hurts the marriage, it hurts the kids, it hurts future marriages, right? There's a trust and fidelity issue that gets broken when you disregard these rules. So where these two verses encompass willing adultery or um, voluntary they also, by default, encompass things called rape. And you look at the United States society when it comes to the issue of rape, and these are tough issues, right? As America has risen in sexual freedom since the 1950s and 60s, the other things that don't get reported on is that we've also seen a massive rise in rape in this country. It's horrible. So violent rapes in the United States in 1960 were 9.6 women out of 100,000. In 1970, it doubled, 18.7. In 1980, 36.8. In 1990, 41.2. And then we saw kind of a leveling off of rapes where we've just kind of come to a, you know, a normal level of rape in our country. This is horrible. If sex is no big deal, if there isn't a God that watches over our sex lives, 
and multiple pardon partners are okay because it's not that bad and it's not emotionally damaging, then it's awfully hard to rationalize away rape. The only real difference between rape and adultery is permission. So we train all of our college kids to work on permission and make sure you have permission in these situations. But at the end of the day, they both go under the same sick worldview, which is it doesn't matter, that sees sex as something that's not important and not relevant. It's a do as you please, just be you, look within yourself for who you want to be. And in any given society where you have people that want to be having sex with multiple people, you're also going to find people who want to have sex even if it's against that person's will. It's sick. It's wicked. It's not healthy as a societal engine. It's not rational. And the reason God gives is it's not godly either. Voluntary or involuntary. When you make sex your fixation in life, it becomes a form of worship. And when a whole society starts to normalize sexual behavior like it's no big thing, guess what? You're going to have more babies. Verse 21, it's progressive. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I'm the Lord. So God conflates sex and adultery and idolatry all at the same time. He does it emphatically. And it's going to be done throughout the Old Testament. From God's viewpoint, it's identical behavior. Faithlessness, selfishness, and oath-breaking all have the same effect. So you got to know who Moloch is to understand this. Moloch is a, a god of the Canaanites. There was a form of Moloch that we've seen worship that was worshipped in Egypt too. And when it says, pass through the fire of Moloch, uh, this is a horrible practice. But Moloch was essentially the planned parenthood of the ancient world. When you had an unwanted baby, you'd go to Moloch ritual, and they would heat up a metal statue that had curved fingers, and you'd put the baby in the hands when they turned red hot under the fire. You'd have loud music going so you couldn't hear the baby. You'd just kind of put the baby in and dance, and you'd see smoke go up to the heavens. It's sick. So they have these large orgies. And you'd go worship Asheroth over here and have sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to. And then when you had babies from that practice, you'd go over to Moloch and you'd take care of the babies so you didn't have to, you know, financially care for this child for the rest of your life. When promiscuity breaks out in a society, the society will create ways to deal with unwanted children. But God doesn't make unwanted children. And that's the tough part. Biblically speaking, there's no room for this. You shall not do it, nor shall you profane the name of your God. When you kill a child, God takes it to that level. You're actually profaning the name of God because God's written that child in his plan. He's known that child before he was knit together in his mother's womb. It's sad, but it's awfully convenient for people that just want to have sex with whoever they want to. So... We move on. Let me go back to that point I made at the beginning. A lot of the arguments around aborting children is arguments of modernity, that we're a modern society. And I hope you can see in this passage, in verse 21 alone, there's nothing modern about killing children. It's not new. It's not something that modern people do who have been, you know, enlightened to a new way of open thinking. It's killing children. And just because we do it in a way where we can't hear the baby scream anymore doesn't mean that it's 
okay in any way, biblically speaking, right? You can work on this one. And I know some of you may kind of have different opinions about this. We can talk about it afterwards. That's the whole point of this. Biblically speaking, you shall not let your descendants, your children, pass through the fire. Okay? Verse 22, it keeps going. You shall not lie with a man as you do with a woman. It's an abomination. So here we see a clear denouncement of male homosexuality. Uh, it's not just an Old Testament piece. I've heard that argument before. It's also in Romans 1, 24 through 32. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It is a consistent biblical argument, Old, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, that homosexuality is not okay according to the Bible. So we have to sort that out. We have a lot of people, even Christians today, that have started to normalize this or adopt this into society in the same way that we've normalized abortion, in the same way that we've kind of just kept quiet the rape rates going up in our society, in the same way that we've normalized open sex with anybody you want to have sex with, premarital sex, adulterous sex. God's argument here is that it's an abomination. The Hebrew word is toava, something that should give us disgust, and it's something that where ritual and ethical choices are being made when this happens. It's not new to the United States or modern culture. Homosexuality was prevalent in the Roman culture, Greek culture, Canaanite culture, Egyptian culture, far more than it was here in the United States of America. We're moving in that direction, but you should expect to see much more homosexuality before, you know, we don't because that's the way societies go when they're not adhering to what they read here. Biblically, God did not create them towards this action. Uh, that's another kind of thought, that people are created in a certain way. Uh, that's a biblical assumption here when you say abomination. Uh, it is something that has been corrupted. There's no, verbal, there's no version of biblical Christianity, if you're going to just read it for what it says, there's no real version of that that's okay with homosexual practice. How do we deal with the topic then? What if you have a family member that's a homosexuality? What if you're a homosexual, right? How do you deal with this? The logic in our society, the one they're trying to put at us, or at least Lady, Lady Gaga putting her song, is that we're all born that way. Biblically speaking, the Bible doesn't disagree with that thought. And I would argue this. We are all born with sinful natures, according to the Bible. So God's order is for us to control those things and to become holy. But we don't start that way. Right? The other thing, biblically speaking, is the attraction or temptation of a thing is not necessarily the same as doing it. And in that sense, the Old Testament is a lot easier on us than the New Testament is. Right? When Jesus starts saying, hey, it's not just the people that do it, it's the people that think it too. And Jesus is trying to point out that we're born with a certain degree or tendency or sin, and every human being has those temptations and those ways in which they were born. So one thought is we're, that's not something that we should be disagreeing with, right? Biblically speaking, we're born with temptations and sin. The sins of the father become the sins of the son. Biblically speaking, the act of sex is not the same thing as love. So why can't people love whoever they want to? The Bible says you should love everyone, um, but having sex with everyone in this chapter is part of where the limitations are. But being in love with someone, that's not a bad thing biblically. It's to think that sex has to be part of that relationship. And we do see biblical examples of, of relationships that are extremely close, that are not sexual, um, but they are things where people live and spend time together um, with the same sex. So temptation is not necessarily action, and tendency is not necessarily permission, right? 
Last, or not last, I got a couple other points. Marriage is not an obligation in the Bible. Paul even argues that there's some people that don't feel the need to get married. So this idea that marriage has to be part of these things too seems to be our society wanting to go in a direction, uh, but it's not necessarily a biblical argument. There's no mention of fear here. So the idea of homophobia is another one of the things that our society talks about. There's no, anywhere in the Bible is there a mention of being fearful of people of a certain sin type, of any sin type, including homosexuality. So to be homophobic is not godly either. In fact, we should be reaching out and building relationships with people from all different groups because God loved us and he knew us when we were sinners, right? So the acceptance of a culture never washes away the guilt and shame. And that's why to some degree you have populations of people that are desperate to be accepted because they're there's an action here that, biblically speaking, is going to have a level of guilt that comes with it. So even though it's something's legally permitted, doesn't mean that we should be doing it. And that's, not, that's true of everything we've just mentioned, including premarital heterosexual sex, right? God's argument in verse 4 was, You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them, for I'm the Lord your God. If you want to serve God, and sex becomes this big of a thing in your life, maybe you should just not have sex and serve God instead. Ephesians 2, verse 1. He made, and you who he made alive, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom... Also, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just like the others. Paul is reminding the Ephesians, you are just like them. So instead of distancing ourselves as Christians from other people, we should recognize that we were those people at one point. We lived according to our desires. We lived according to the flesh, but we don't do that anymore. We live according to the Spirit. And until people have come into a relationship with God, to hold them accountable for any of this is fairly irrational, right? Because they're living according to the desires of their flesh. So if that's their desire, they're going to go do it. The desire isn't to change, the, the goal of, of, of conversion isn't to change that. It's that God changes that. First come to God and let God start to work on you, right? And over time, God does things. So we can argue over moral laws and we can have debates about incest and about adultery and about homosexuality and we can debate these things or as alive people in Christ, we can just walk in God's ways. We can just do what he tells us to do, right? When I was doing Ephesians, I like the idea that there's a group of Pharisees, people that are believers, and they proclaim holiness without proclaiming love and it's broken. It's what's broken with the Pharisees. But there's Gentiles who proclaim free love, but they don't have any holiness in their life. That's broken too. There's a third path, which is to proclaim holiness in love or in Christ to be better because we do all of these things in Christ. We seek holiness because God loves us. And that's why we want it. We serve a God who's awake and alive. And when we do that, we become awake and alive too. It's part of the eternal plan that God has for us, and it's beautiful. Okay, I wanted to get into that because in verse 23, we're going to move into things that we don't see as much of here in America, um, bestiality. So again, the Bible is R-rated, and it doesn't leave anything out. So verse 23, 
nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It's perversion. It kind of makes me uncomfortable just to read it because this is nasty. <laughs> but normally in Egypt, this was happening in the temples, in the rituals, in, in, in Canaan where they're going. This was common practice, right? It's by medical professionals, it is, is, it is commonly believed that most venereal diseases originate at some point from bestiality, right? So people will have sex with their sheep and then they will come home and have sex with their wife and this starts a sexual thing going all over the place. So this isn't new, it's old. And you would expect this, if this is a progressive chapter and I'm right, then in my generation growing up, and, and well, actually our grandparents saw a rise in, in adultery and free sex with anybody they wanted. And, and they tried to fight against it and it didn't work because people weren't trying to be holy. They were trying to do whatever their flesh desired. And in my generation, we saw a rise in all kinds of different perversions and things like that. In your generation, the next generation coming up, I think you're going to see a rise of bestiality. And here's why I think that. U.S. experts, I quote, suggest that the number of bestiality acts has increased in the last decade plus, fueled by online digital communities that normalize the act of bestiality and provide clear opportunities to engage in sex with animals. In other words, if you're so inclined in the flesh, there are websites that teach you how to do it safely and how to do it appropriately. But this is kind of twisted, right? And normally, in a holy society where there's a dominating moral order, not even if everybody doesn't follow it, these sorts of behaviors are shamed. But online, I can privately go look this stuff and I can find communities of people that are going to not shame me when I go and do these things, right? So is it a Christian's job to go shame these people? No. Our job is to give them something better to live for than sex with an animal. And we're losing that argument on everything so far in this chapter. It'd be nice to try to pull people away from this next stage. Historically, bestiality is often mixed with human infidelity, right? So the people that have sex with animals often have sex with multiple partners outside of the animal relationships, right? It is also the case the people don't stop with bestiality. They try to go to the next level all the time. And this is where it gets even worse. This is uh, research from Dr. Gene Abel in, in 2016. Three different studies on the habits of sex crime offenders found that 36% to 55% of all incarcerated respondents, it's a survey, said they acted on sexual attraction towards animals prior to doing violent things to other humans that put them in a jail cell. Dr. Abel also noted expert on sexual deviance and abuse, showing evidence of a 2009 report that bestiality is the sing single biggest factor in predicting pedophilia, right? It gets worse. In 2016, right today, a study found that 96% of 150 convicted men of animal cruelty-related offenses had been previously arrested for human sexual assault. Animal assault goes with human assault. Because if there's nothing stopping me from doing whatever I feel in the flesh, and there's no shame for communities of people that do these things, then what's the moral argument to stop that kind of behavior, right? You're creating a culture where anything's permissible.
nothing gets shamed. Nothing's inappropriate. There's no line that we, we actually draw in the sand, right? Here's the weird part. There's a 2002 study where they did 93 uh, interviews with people doing bestiality, and, and a number of them argued that they had genuine care and love for the animals, and they had limits. They wouldn't have sex with young animals or smaller animals that could be hurt. So again, we see this tendency in the scientific community when there's no moral law over the behavior that they start to justify the behavior and create arbitrary human limits to this stuff, right? Or serve God. And you don't have to pursue these things. You don't have to argue these things. You don't have to fight for the right to do these things without shame because you're, you're seeking God more than you seek your fluffy friend. Sorry, Shadow. even if something's legal or becomes legal, and a number of states in the U.S. outlaw bestiality still, even if it's legal, it has massive spiritual consequences, right? The word perversion in the Hebrew is tabal, to be confused, something that's out of order and unnatural. And God is the God of order from Genesis 1, right? He sees chaos and he creates something new. Verse 24, I know I went off on that a long time. Verse 24, don't defile yourselves with any of these things for by all these things, the nations are defiled. It's not new. It's not avant-garde cultural progress. It's old and ancient stuff that's coming back. All these nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it and the land vomits out its inhabitants. Don't defile yourself, other people, because eventually there's a consequence for that. Here's the good part. If you do it God's way, first of all, read Song of Solomon. It's a beautiful thing to have sex. Sex is wonderful. It is powerful, and it is spiritual, right? Read Song of Solomon, and you can see what God's plan is while he's making all these limits on all this other stuff. Statistically speaking, married couples routinely live longer, they routinely have better sex, and they routinely have a lot more sex than unmarried people. So there's actually a path where I think God wants us to have more sex and better sex if we do it in the ordered way that he's created for it. Again, though, acceptance is not the goal of a society like it is right now. It's the problem. In, in a biblical perspective, God flips it. It's okay to choose to not be defiled. And that's still a path that's amazing and wonderful. God says, I visit the punishment. I think that's an important thing for us to know as Christians. It's not our job to punish people, right? We may vote a certain way or live in a country where we agree with certain laws and limits, but it's not our job to go out and visit punishment. It's sick to do that. We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't take that into our own hands. God does that, and God will take care of that, right? So I would argue in a democracy, we have an, obliga an obligation to vote how we see fit, um, but it's not our job to just go out and hate on people. Don't do that. Um, verse 29, we do have some obligation, and that is to the standards that God sets, right? Many of these Hebrews then had likely participated in all this stuff. So when Moses brings this to these people, he's telling a people that would have grown up in these societies that they're going to do something different. Amazingly, 
Israel says, we're on board and we're going to do this the way God wants us to do it. But that meant that a lot of them had to change their lifestyle. They had to change the way they'd been doing things since they were born, right? They had to break the cycle of damage, hurt, and abuse that they'd grown up with. God calls so many people in America to do the same thing. If you've done these kinds of things or you've been party to these kinds of things, God calls you to stop doing it, right? It doesn't matter what you did in Egypt. You're not going to do it when you go into Canaan. You're going to break that cycle and raise your own families and your own households that could be free from that kind of fear. And you can be faithful and have fidelity and honor things because you start doing that today, right? All of this, especially this chapter on sex, <laughs> it's a form of adultery according to God. It's a spiritual deviance. It's giving your heart to sex instead of giving your heart to God. And God's response to that is that the land itself will vomit out its inhabitants. This sort of thing destroys cultures. And they're still in Egypt today, but if you look at the DNA research, the Egyptians that live in Egypt today are not the people that were there anciently as they look at, because mummies they can pull DNA from. The Egyptians that we're talking about here in the Bible are gone. They're long gone. And the Canaanites are long dead and gone. The Israelites still are around. Verse 26. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out too when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Frankly, Israel's going to give in to almost all of this stuff. And and the land will vomit them out. So they'll end up being taken away to Babylon because they're going to fail in a lot of these respects because the sexual drive is strong. And the sexual drive without limits can be something that's totally dominating to the human mind. We all know people even in our own world today that reject these kinds of things. In fact, I said earlier on, this is the chapter where if you're going to have people that argue, this is the chapter they're going to argue with you on. They're going to come right to these kinds of ideas. They're going to say that's ridiculous. Why would you wait for sex till marriage? What a silly thing. You're limiting yourself. You're cutting off your freedom. But it's not to cut off freedom. The purpose of all this is to flourish, to actually have a safe kind of space. And when you know the boundaries, you have a wider area to be comfortable in. This is true in other areas too. Like I think of soccer. How fun would the game of soccer be if there were no boundaries at the edge? You'd have some idiot that kicked the ball 20 miles and you'd all be standing there waiting, but he would just keep playing. So the purpose of boundaries is so that we can play together and we can do it in a safe way. And we can do it in a way where we love each other and enjoy each other's companies in an agape, filio kind of love, right? So boundaries actually create a space we can play on. They did research with kids. I know it's from the education world where playgrounds that had fences around them got used by the kids all the way up to the fences. But when they took the fences away, they did a lot of this in the 70s, all the kids naturally kind of gravitated back towards the building and they didn't use the playground because the fences provide safety and security and order. And those are good things. They're not things to be mocked. They're not things to be ignored. They're actually valuable things in a biblical sense. Verse 29 for whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from the land of the people. So in 26 through 28, nations that do this are going to have problems. 
In verse 29, individuals that do this are going to have problems. Therefore, verse 30, you shall keep my ordinance. He doesn't give health arguments. He doesn't give psychological arguments. He just says you should do this so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I'm the Lord your God. And I, even at that last part, you really see the contrast, like where God's looking at these things as spiritual behaviors. Don't do whatever you want sexually because I'm your God, not sex, right? He's contrasting himself there. So for now, we have this list that will drive them to the tabernacle. They should repent. They will walk away from all this modernity and this new stuff that their cultures had accepted, and they're going to become a holy people. They're going to be different. And in that, they're going to be a light to the world. When we walk as God wants us to walk, not only will we tick off people that want to do this stuff, um, just by being in the room, there'll be a sense of conviction. Like, we don't even have to open our mouths. Um, but we become set apart. We become a light and a holy offering. And there will be people who are drawn to that because they want to be different too. There's a dualism here. You get to pick sinful life, doing whatever you want to do, and a righteous life, living by God's ordinances. It's a persistent idea in the New Testament too. And again, I like to draw these connections because I keep hearing this thing where the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't the same kind of gospel. Yeah, they are. 1 John uh, chapter 3. Look at or behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Right? And that's the same thing we just got through with Leviticus. Look at this love God is showing to this nation so they can be called children of God. We get the same thing. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it doesn't know him. Beloved, <laughs> loved ones, we're a, we are now children of God and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him is purified himself, just as he is pure. Whoever commits a sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin, and whoever sins has not seen him and doesn't know him. If you're still wrestling with sin, it's not that you're not saved. It's that you haven't really gotten to know God in a way where sin's just not desirable. In fact, the best way to fight sin in our life is to ask God for us to just not be interested in it anymore. Lord, take away the desire for me to do these things that bring shame in my life. Watch God act when you pray that prayer. You'll wake up three months later and realize you just don't even want it anymore. You're not even interested in it anymore. And that's the way we fight sin. I want to keep reading because now he calls us little children. I love that. It's like story time with Grandpa John. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this is the purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God doesn't sin. For his seed remains in him, and he can sin because he has been born of God. And I'm not just talking about one-off sins. I think John's talking about a lifestyle, right? Where you've committed yourself to a living situation of sin. Good people can't do that anymore, right? 
and that people become Christians and they look at those things and you just suddenly, what never used to bother you starts to bother you. So be holy because God's holy. It's a tough chapter sometimes and if you wrestle with some of these issues, uh, Christina's going to have a Zoom ready to go and I think we all have the Zoom channel in the group me. So you can go to the group me and we can jump into Zoom and we can just talk about it there. Um, I'm interested to see what you all think of bestiality <laughs> and other kinds of things. Um, and uh, we'll jump over to that spot. But let's pray before we head over. Dear Lord and King, we want to be without sin. And you know, Lord, you know our hearts that we still struggle with the temptation. We still are in the flesh and we have lusts of the flesh. Lord, that bring our eye to all other kinds of things. But Lord, help us to worship nobody else but you. None of the things of this world have the power that you do. So Lord, take away the desire for sin. Take away any justification, excuse, or argument that we have because you're our God and those things aren't. So Lord, help us not to diminish your holiness with petty little things that humans like to do with themselves. And Lord, help us not to, to diminish your message through your church because we're hypocrites and we're compromised. Help us to be all in Christians, that we love you and we love you with our whole heart and we are with everything in us trying to be holy. And Lord, we're going to struggle with that until the day we die, but help us to never stop fighting sin and fighting sin in our lives and fighting sin in our families and in our homes. Let us break the cycle of sin that we may be inherited and Lord, help us to just be, be holy and to be somebody who chooses a different kind of lifestyle. Not because we're restricting ourselves, but Lord, because we love your boundaries. Not because we're going retro and we're trying to wear bonnets and beards again, Lord, but because we know this stuff is old. It's not new and it's not modern and it's not hip. Uh, Lord, we, we're not interested in these things because they're old, because they're, they're wicked and they're stupid and they destroy people and they're hurtful. And Lord, we just pray that for the people in our lives that struggle with this stuff, Lord, we pray for their spiritual health. We pray for them to reach out and, and, and grasp onto you for their life because there's no life in any of this stuff. It's only destructive in the end. So Lord, we just pray for them. We love them. Uh, they're our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our aunts, our uncles, Lord, that whole list, Lord. Uh, we just love them with an agape kind of love and we just want them to be drawn to you, Lord, because you're so good and you're so holy. We love you. May our fellowship be inspired and blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.